All right, good morning, everybody. I'm Pastor Nelson. I, uh, I'm a pastor here. So, I haven't seen you since March, I think, right? Before Easter. Well, and you won't see me next week, so one and done. Okay, well, hopefully, um, you know we're going to talk about Bell and the Dragon today. Now, for those of you who might not have read it, we're actually, it's a very short little writing, so we'll actually read it. Um, but Bell is not like Princess Bell, just in case you were wondering. Yeah, it was, uh, there's no, and, and the dragon is not a flying dragon, so there's really no, yeah, no, no King Arthur mythology in this, for those who might be looking for it. I, when I first heard of the story, I thought, oh, this is sweet, it's going to be great. Princesses and flying dragons and, <sighs> but nothing, nothing like that, just a boring idle, idle story. Actually, it's quite exciting. I find. Now, um, uh, before we get started, let's say, oh, yeah, with dragons up here, you know, dragons are in the Bible. I don't know if you knew that or not. But um, (laughs) the Leviathan and Job, it's 41. I should have put that up there, too. I I, I know, I'm pretty sure about the chat. I know the chapters are right. I'm pretty sure those those Bible verses are right. Bell is mentioned in Isaiah and Jeremiah, so. If anyone wants to, well, I guess I could look that up myself. But uh, I could also put Job 41, and that is the, Leviath- the Leviathan, the, uh, the sea dragon. Big, great beast of the ocean. Loch Ness Monster, maybe. Who knows? I don't know. <laughs> I'm totally teasing because, um, well, because I don't, I, I just, the Loch Ness Monster exist. We're not here to talk about that. All right, so Bell, the Dragon, and the Lion's Den. It is um, in the uh, Greek translations of the Old Testament. They include this chapter, so it'd be kind of like chapter 14 of the book of Daniel. But the uh, Jerusalem Bibles, or the uh, Hebrew, the, the ancient Hebrew texts don't include this, and so hence it's never been included. It, it wasn't really included widely in the Old Testament times. Um, and then it's included, it's not included in any sort of, like in our Bible, of course, and even in uh, the Roman Catholic canon and Eastern Orthodox, it's... Uh, Deuterocanonical doesn't hold as much weight as uh, chapters 1 through 13. Okay, anyways, uh, so when you read it, it's going to be fun to read because uh, there's a lot of interesting things in there, um, but some of them, some of the things in there are a little bit of a, a, a confusing. Anywho, all right, so what is it all about? I, it, it's a detective story. It's a battle, and it's a miracle story. Um, but I think most of all, it's a story about what to do when you are the religious minority. 
how to handle yourself in a society that does not fundamentally have your religious worldview. Okay. Well, I mean, it, okay, it is also about like how God is the one true God and how he saves his people. But it's more of an application, I guess. I'm, I'm bringing it up. So if, if you got your, your apocryphas handy, if not, you can listen. But we're going to read the first part, which is the longest part, 1 through 22. And this is about Bell and Daniel and uh, Cyrus. Um, when King Astyges was laid with his ancestors, Cyrus the Persian received his kingdom. And Daniel was a companion of the king and was the most honored of his friends. Now the Babylonians had an idol called Bel, and every day they spent on it twelve bushels of fine flour and forty sheep and fifty gallons of wine. The king revered it and went every day to worship it. But Daniel kept worshiping his own god. And the king said to him, why do you not worship Bel? He answered, Because I do not revere man-made idols, but the living God who created heaven and earth and has dominion over all flesh. The king said to him, Do you not think that Bel is a living God? Do you not see how much he eats and drinks every day? Then Daniel laughed and said, Do not be deceived, O king, for this is but clay inside and brass outside, and it never ate or drank anything. Then the king was angry, and he called his priests and said to them, If you do not tell me who is eating these provisions, you shall die. But if you prove that Bel is eating them, Daniel shall die, because he blasphemed against Bel. And Daniel said to the king, Let it be done as you have said. Now there were seventy priests of Bel besides their wives and children. And the king went with Daniel into the temple of Bel. And the priests of Bel said, Behold, we're going outside. You yourself, O king, shall set forth the food and mix and place the wine and shut the door and seal it with your signet. And when you return in the morning, if you do not find that Bel has eaten it at all, we will die. Or else Daniel will, who is telling lies about us. They were unconcerned, for beneath the table they had made a hidden entrance, through which they used to go in regularly and consume the provisions. When they had gone out, the king set forth the food for Bel. Then Daniel ordered his servants to bring ashes, and they sifted them throughout the whole temple, in the presence of the king alone. Then they went out, shut the door, and sealed it with the king's signet, and departed. In the night the priests came with their wives and children, as they were accustomed to do, and ate and drank everything. Early in the morning the king rose and came, and Daniel with him. And the king said, Are the seals unbroken, Daniel? He answered, They are unbroken, O king. As soon as the doors were opened, the king looked at the table and shouted in a loud voice, You are great, O Bel, and with you there is no deceit, none at all. Then Daniel laughed and restrained the king from going in and said, I can't really laugh at this. Look at the flower and notice whose footsteps these are. The king said, I see the footsteps of men and women and children. Then the king was enraged, and he seized the priests and their wives and children, and they showed him the secret doors through which they were accustomed to enter and devour what was on the table. Therefore the king put them to death and gave Bel over to Daniel, who destroyed it and its temple. All right, that's the first scene. Curtain. Um, yeah, there's three distinct scenes in the story. The one between... Uh, Daniel and Bell, and then 
Daniel and the dragon, and then Daniel in the lion's den. And they work somewhat... Um, the, 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 the scenes get, the stakes get higher in every scene. So, well, first of all, who is Belle? We know who she's, or we know who Belle's not. It's not Belle from Beauty and the Beast. But um, Belle uh, is the Mesopotamian uh, head, head god for Mesopotamia, or the Babylonians. In Cana, you heard of Baal, right, from reading the Old Testament. Baal is the head god for the Canaanites. So in the ancient Near East, they most had pantheons of gods. And in Babylon, or Mesopotamia, uh, Bel is kind of the main, the, the, head, the head one. Uh, he, it's another name for Marduk. Marduk was the head. And um, so he, Marduk was kind of the, the king god, meaning like the kings would hold Marduk in the highest regard, where everybody else could utilize the gods for whatever purposes they needed. The king looked to Marduk for leadership, wisdom, guidance, uh, because he was the king of the gods. So he, uh, he also looked over the city of Babylon, and he was the creator god. And that's important for us to remember, that Marduk, or Bel, is the creator god, according to Mesopotamian uh, cosmology, the way the world works. Okay, so I, I have an old uh, Q, uh, uh, Assyrian cylinder image there from a, a nice book by John Walton, who's a professor of at Wheaton College. But he, uh, anyways, uh, it's, um, Marduk is on the right side, and he has his dragon next to him, and he's going to, I don't know who the other the other things are, but Marduk and his dragon are on the right side, and they're ready for conflict. But um, so we already find out that Marduk or Bell and the dragon go together. Now, the um, what does uh, Cyrus say about Bell in from verse six? And this is important for us to kind of distinguish how or what are the parameters that distinguish kind of a true confession of who God is and why he's God versus kind of an idol. And, yeah, Krista. That's right. This is important for us to realize is that uh, fundamentally uh, the king has no understanding of, of who God is or what God is, right? Mainly because um, if he's the creator God... Logically speaking, would he have any need or dependence upon his creation for sustenance? No, no. <laughs> He's a creator guy. He can make his own food. He doesn't need people to give it to him. Now, contrast to, of course, what Daniel says about the living God, and that is from verses 5. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Hang on. We got, what does Daniel say about Bel? Well, he's man-made. Uh, because he's from created stuff, brass and clay. And, of course, you know, brass and clay can't eat. He's calling something what it is. This is we'll see this throughout all three of the stories. This is a strategy for Daniel. Okay, uh, and then um, 
Well, what does Daniel do say about who the living God is? He is um, creator. Who did he create? And what does he what does he do? Yeah. I, oh, yeah. So I had the ESV translation of the Apocrypha, and I think you guys have the King James version. So uh, my, the way it's translated over here is dominion over all flesh. So he is a is he's a creator of heaven and earth, and he he can, he's in control of things. He's not dependent on anything or on anyone. Okay. And so if you think about that, if if the living God is truly creator of heaven and earth and has dominion or sovereign over all things, then he is there, there's really this there's no uh Nobody's nervous in this situation. And if you see, Daniel does not show any signs of uh, nervousness, exasperation, um, or pressure. He's very, he's just kind of, all right, let's do this. Let's not worry. I mean, okay. That's important for us to kind of consider. All right. Now, what's interesting about this ruler, or at least I think it's very interesting, is that there, there is a certain desire from the ruler. And I, I think it appears that the ruler is genuinely interested in a living God. Because you see that in verses 6, 8, 9, 18, and then you see it again in 24 and 41, where, um, you know, do you not think that Bill is a living God? He's kind of offended. He's like, well, look, look at this. Of course he is. And then, of course, with such fervor, he wants to he wants to be he wants to he wants to make sure that this is true. I mean, his words to the priests are, "You better tell me right now who's eating these things." And this is important for us because we'll 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 kind of contrast how the king relates to the or uh, reacts to this and how the people react to this in the next story. All right. Um, of course, then you know how does Daniel defeat? Bell. Yeah, ashes on the floor. What I find interesting, though, is if you take a look. Now, uh, what's lacking in this story? Daniel doesn't pray. Doesn't pray to God. There's no invoking of a miracle. It's very, very kind of just mundane. It's very just plain. So, uh, in, in chapel, we read from 1 Samuel chapter 5, which I'm sure is everybody's favorite passage. Uh, it's the defeat of Dagon. Dagon was the, the Philistine god. And um, not much is known about Dagon, but uh, he, the Philistines defeated Israel. They took the ark, and they put it in the temple of Dagon because gods belong in, with other gods, right? They have a pantheon sort of understanding. Well, of course, when the living God comes in the midst of idols, what are idols going to do? Well, yeah, first they fall down, right? They actually fall down, face down in front of the ark. And then they are smashed. And the head and the hands were cut off. The head's cut off of Dagon and his hands are, which renders him useless. He, he doesn't have any mouth to speak any words, and he has no hands to do anything. So, um, 
But now in there, though, it's all done behind closed doors, right? We don't, we don't see anything happen. Just know that it happens. And then bad things happen to the Philistines, and they're like, oh, what are we going to do with this thing? And the priests say, well, put it over there. And then everyone's got boils or, I can't remember, tumors or something. And then they're finally like, Ugh, give it back and, and make sure. What's interesting, though, is the Philistines actually offer a guilt offering, which is a whole other kind of peculiar thing, is that they actually do something, you know, faithful. All right, so um, anyways, so that's one kind of understanding of how idols are defeated. It, it's, it's, a, it's kind of similar to the bell situation where it kind of happens. There's no, there's nothing, I mean, we don't know if anything miraculous happened. I mean, something happened, but nobody knows. It's a mystery. All right, and then, um, and then 2 Kings 18, yeah, yeah, 2 Kings, yeah, 2 Kings 18, Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Now that one is similar. How is that similar to the story of, of Baal? For those, for those who might know, well, yeah, so just answer the question, then we'll maybe fill in the gaps for those who might not know the story. Yeah, Nancy. Yeah, right, it burns up. Now, the thing is, though, what does Elijah say about Baal? Julie. Right. Now, of course, that's, he's mocking. So if you've got to read, you know, the subtext of his mockery is, in fact, he can't hear because he is a man-made thing. He has no ears to hear, actually. So that's very similar to how Daniel reacts to Bell. Now, very different, though, of course, is that Daniel, I mean, uh, Elijah, you know, has this miraculous thing happen. So it is a little different in terms of how he defeats the idol. Holly. Yeah, right. Okay, good question. Yeah. So, so the um, uh, there's, there's a variety of variety of things. Actually, the one um, uh, I, was, I was trying to think of like a uh, kind of a more contemporary example of this, and the only thing I could come up with is not very contemporary. Um, it's a, it's a uh, the Mayans. Um, have you ever seen? Have you ever seen? Yeah, the Mayan sacrifices, and there was a time where, um, yeah, you, yeah, yeah, they, they sacrifice. And has anyone ever seen the movie Apocalypto? It was a very good movie. It's all done in Mayan. Okay, I think it won an Academy Award. So you know, I'm not that obscure. I mean, I'm not the only one who's heard of this. Um, he. Uh, the reason why it's so interesting is because at, at the end of the movie, there's a, there's a young Mayan Indian who is kidnapped to be sacrificed to the Mayan gods. And it just is about, as he's about, it has his, rip, his heart ripped out. The epic, uh, uh, an eclipse happens. And of course, what do the Mayans believe? The gods have spoken. 
So part of part of the the part of the power of these ancient gods or idols was interpreting the times or things that have happened, and then giving a a, a theology to it. This is part of the ancient world's just kind of cosmology, how they understood the world. They understood the world. So, so gods weren't just kind of part of the world. I mean, they were influenced every day. There was no atheists back then. I mean, there was no such thing. You, everyone worshipped a god. There was gods. There were people. They were interacting. They had relationships with one another. That is just what it was. So it's very hard for us in, in modern times to kind of understand that. So... Um, so you would go through life, and anything good happens, you, of course, equate to something the gods gave to you. Something bad happens is, is punishment to which you need to appease. And, of course, what's, what's interesting about the Mayan, the, this movie, is that clearly their society is falling apart. And they keep sacrificing these, these people to the gods, thinking that if they just keep doing it, it's going to get better. Well, what's interesting is, is that that's the very thing that's actually killing them because they're killing people. They can no longer use their own people. they got to go to other, other like cities or towns or whatever to get them. And, of course, when you have that many dead people lying around, in parts, what inevitably is going to be shared? Disease. So, so what you find out is in this ancient cosmology, the way the ancient world worked is that they, they really saw everything in terms of reciprocity. God blessed me. I, I must be pretty good. Of course, how does the king understand that? I'm king, so I'm, I'm the best. And everybody revered him. We'll actually see this at the end of the story of, of Bell and the Dragon. And then if bad things happen to you, oh, you're terrible you got to do something to appease it. you got to change your ways, you, or you got to make sacrifices. You gotta, there's something that, that you've done. Now, of course, this cosmology has influenced what? Even, even church, right? So, um, so, so this is where it, it is somewhat difficult for us to kind of put ourselves in the midst of that society back then, but that's, that's kind of fundamentally it, is they already had the frame of mind that gods were active in the world. Anything good happened was because of the good works. You know, that's how we would talk about it, but um, of, of God's blessing them based on what they've done, and then God's reprimanding them or punishing them based on what they've done. Or just having fun. Yeah, certain gods were arbitrary. That's exactly right. In fact, one of them is Ishtar, whose, whose uh, symbol was the lion. And um, that could play in the lion's den story. I don't think so, but it could. So, yeah, Ishtar was a paradoxical, she was a goddess who was both at the same time like caring, but also a prostitute and, and, you know, all these things. And so people were never really sure what was happening. That was another thing, too, about ancient cosmology. That's very different than Israel's cosmology. Nobody was sure about anything. So they always did these things with kind of, I hope God relents, which, are, which is in the Jonah story. Jonah goes to 40 days, and the city will be overturned. The king says, oh, let's everyone repent and put sackcloth on, and who knows? 
maybe God won't do it. I mean, that's, that's a classic ancient cosmology response. Mm, maybe. So, uh, which is very different than Israel, which speaks very confidently towards God. Nancy. Yeah, I was going to say, in Africa, their cosmology wasn't as developed. Instead of being God based on their own spirits in the ground. Right. So, in fact, it was kind of amoral because God was so distant from us. Distant from us. He didn't give a rip about your relations with others. That's exactly right. Right. And if you didn't sacrifice, you're afraid that something bad is going to happen, and you're kind of caught in this bind where you know you make these sacrifices, you know, and you could say to somebody, "Well, look, you you laid out all these eggs, and mm-hmm. nothing happened." And well, the spirit ate it spiritually. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. No. And Nancy brings up a good point, is because um, it's not like this cosmology is gone. Even, even in the Western society, it, 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 it takes on different forms. But um, this, this idea of the amoral, the understanding that the gods influence your daily life between choosing right and wrong, that's not part of their society. It's not. It's, relationships are not based on right and wrong, but really based on who's in charge. So... To use a kind of more modern understanding, it's it's by power. Yeah. Krista. Um, I just was thinking uh, to to feed uh, the the God. It's just the same as in West Chicago, the the temple of um, we visit one time. That, uh, uh, yeah, the Hindu. The, is it the Hindu Mandir? Yeah, right. And they prepared. I saw it. Yep. We saw it. Yeah, right. They prepared food. Yep. And bring it to these... Uh, right. Uh, 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 yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, if you haven't gone to the Hindu Mandir, you should. They give nice tours. Um, you learn a lot. But it's creepy. <laughs> well, it's, it, hey, yeah, uh, it's, it's very different. But, of course, as uh, we, we can take the character of Daniel when we enter into these places. Because... We, I mean, there's nothing to fear in that respect. However, this goes back to Holly's question. We cannot discount the role of demons in, in all this, too. So, um, so there very well could be... Well, of course, not very well. There is uh, examples of miracles happening by the power of you know, magicians. Case in point is uh, Egypt, right? And they only could do certain things up to a point. And then after that, the magicians are like, hey, we're out. This is, this is the real deal. Pharaoh, you better watch out. So, um, and again, in, in those circumstances, God then manifests himself in the way that needs to be manifest. I mean, in this circumstance, God could have just came down and just, you know, I don't know, karate chopped bell. Who knows? But he didn't have to do that. Tina. Right. And, you know, they're having, they, it's in their best interest to keep promoting this false god because they're, you know. They're living high in the hog. Holy smokes. Exactly. So, you know, he, 
I mean, if I was obligated to, what was it? I mean, eat all that food every night. In a society where food, you know, food is not as scarce, especially meat. Right. It's just hard to say. It'd be hard for him to say, no, this isn't a living God. Uh, absolutely. So th- this is why I think the, the mind of the ruler for us is, is somewhat empathetic. We should be empathetic towards him. Because I think he does have this desire. I mean, it's kind of, he has, he has faith in his faith. Which for us as Christians, again, in a modern, I don't know if we'll ever get to this, so, but let's, I'll bring it out right now, is that, um, so when we confront people who are genuine of their faith, but their faith is fundamentally wrong. We can't. We can't. Like it, it's wrong. I mean, we have to. We have to be able to do something or say something or, or relate to these people. It, it's not okay. And so, um, I think. I think the character of the king is, is a good example of those type of people that we probably know in our life, or get visited uh, on Saturday mornings by two people at your front door. Yeah, right. But I just had someone recently who's been raised Catholic but pretty much doesn't go to church. Sure. My was very ill, and she said, The Lord just has to let up on her. And I. The Lord what? Has to let up on her. Oh, yes, right. It was C. Diff, and she kept getting it back. And um, I said, Well, we don't really know, but I would be more inclined to think that's not something the Lord sent your mother. But, you know, well, the, the idea, though, of, of uh, God being, have dominion over all flesh means fundamentally God is in control. So even in a circumstance where bad things happen to people, God is in control. In fact, uh, this, is, this is a very interesting topic that I actually am kind of interested in, so I'm going to try to withhold myself from it. But in the Middle Ages, there was this thing called the arts morende, the art of dying. And um, medieval Christian books or pamphlets or, or workbooks were all stressed on certain things you did. So it was almost like, if you have this problem, do these things. And, and then the Reformation happens. And Luther basically says... Uh, no, I mean, all things can be used for good, and and so, but but there's a greater there's a greater kind of story being told, and that's the death of resurrection, and so, um, it wasn't until really kind of well, Luther really brought back to the forefront this certainty and confidence approaching death, saying that. Even God can be bringing this upon me. So the notion of what a good death is is it's it's not it's not saying that death is good, but that you can die in a way that is good. And Luther really really transformed that. So so what what that does then for like certain people is that it it, it actually retells this circumstance according to God's, God's work and word based on God's salvation or his victory, death and resurrection 
for Lutherans justification by faith alone through grace alone. Um, so this is um, so yeah. So you have this in today's society though. This idea that um, God's doing something to me, kind of in a, uh, a, a discipline or, or punishment sort of way. But it, it's it's that would be then to and then what are you going to do? You have to re, uh, kind of make restitution towards God, which of course doesn't fit into our understanding of salvation, right? Christ has done everything. So that's where things kind of fall apart, but that is somewhat of an ancient thread through a lot of this. Yeah. Hence, hence, you know, you have a lot of people, you know, when they say, God, why are you doing this to me? The simple answer is, well, I don't know. In this, what I say to them is, I don't know I don't know why God's doing this to you. And I say that because their question is, is the wrong kind of question. And I don't really feel like, hey, you shouldn't ask that question. Um, so I don't know. But the things you do know is that God is in control and that this too will work out for your salvation. So there's, that's hope. Right? That's hope. So the only thing that makes that circumstance bearable is hope. Anything outside hope, then you turn into, I got to do something to fix this, or I have a certain God who's just a, you know, masochistic. Yeah, Aaron. Right. Well, I, I mean, I know, I know the theology behind this. So this goes then to kind of how Jesus died. The character to which Jesus dies then can now take over the character of which we experience pain. Now, the thing is, though, of course, there's a fundamental character that's different than to a lot of our pain and suffering. Jesus suffered innocently. Now, this is one of the things about the arts morende in the Middle Ages and up through Luther. The first thing that you were to do as a Christian, as you were cared for, was to go to private confession. Now, why would, why, why would that set the record? Why would that put you back into the right place? And, and, so why would that put you in the right place as you proceed towards death? Because who, who would you be put in line with? Jesus. But if you enter into death still holding on to something that you can do it on your own or that you are somehow have, have um, you know, considered still thinking about this, uh, this suffering is really unjust and someone has done to me and they need to, they need to fix it or uh, th- then you're not, you can't suffer. You can't experience the joy of that suffering. Or maybe you could, but it's going to be, it's going to be, poof, that's going to be painful and hard. And you're going to be resenting then throughout this whole thing. Uh, when I say the, the whole experience. So this is one of the great things about the arts morende and the role of confession and pastoral care as you approach death is that this is the time to just let go. You're going to die. You're, you're, I mean, you're suffering. And there is, don't hang on to that stuff as you enter into death. Confess it. Let it go. And, and, let, and, and have Christ lead the way into death. 
you know, because he, he's the one who's entered into death. He's the, he knows the way out. So, yeah, so that, that, the theology behind that, that margin comment is, is wonderful. It's beautiful because it gives us great hope as we experience tragedies and, and sufferings. Um, but I've talked, to, I've talked to so many people who, well, I'll give you another. For those who like to read or watch movies, I may have mentioned this before, The Diary of the Country Priest. He's a, it's a French film. It's a French book. It's been translated. It's a beautiful story. Obviously, it's very relatable for me, but it's a very, it's a very relatable story. There's a wonderful story about how this priest approaches this uh, older woman who's lost her son, and kind of uh, she's lost her son, and she hasn't really moved from the day he died. Like she, even though it's been decades, she still has a picture of him as a little child. And now she's, well, you kind of figure it out that she's, she's close to death. So the priest, who's young and he's got his own problems, recognizes that she has, she's, she's angry at God and she's holding this contempt. But she hides the contempt under this terrible tragedy. I lost my son as a, as a child. I have the right to now be angry and contempt, you know, be, you know, have contempt. Well, the priest actually uh, confronts her about this, and she says, don't do this to me. I'm going to lose my son all over again. But what he recognizes is that what she actually has is not her son, but what? Hatred? Yep, hatred. What about the image of her son? He is actually, that's right, Donna, that's right, an idol. Oh, so when he says you, you got to like smash that idol, she, he, she feels he's kill, she's killing her son. It's, it's, it is a uh, very powerful scene in the movie for me. I mean, I'm, I'm like, there's, it's very quiet. The movie, Robert Bresson, is a very, he's a very, uh, very parse when he does it, so you have to engage the film. But it's this great spiritual battle, and it is be- so between the the priest and and this mother, and it kind of flashes back and forth, and she's standing, he's kneeling, or he's sitting, and and all there's all this great movement, and then she throws his pic- the boy's picture into the fire, and she's like, well, what do I do now? And and then they they they, they pray the Our Father together. It's beautiful. So she has now, so she has, she's, she's felt like her whole entire life has been suffering and that she's had a terrible, I mean, she's just, you know, she's kind of, she has this moral high ground to be in this kind of state or the way she feels. But what she found out that she's actually, she's been worshiping an idol and she's been holding on to sin. And it's not until she lets go of that and confesses her sins that, then she enters into that state of joyful suffering now, joyful tragedy. And she dies like the next two days later. So it's a. It, it's not easy to figure that stuff out. That's why, you know, you pray, you seek spiritual counsel, you have your pastor visit you and, and care for you and hopefully speak truthfully to you. <laughs> um, okay, there you go. Donna. 
talking about joy. There, yes. There is a passage, I think it's maybe in Hebrews, uh, it says, for the joy that is set before him. That's right. Endure the cross, yeah. Yep, yep. And, and Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. That's right. It is, it is, it's a very hopeful thing. That's right. Um, that's the only way we can actually look at our sin and, and you know, treat it head on. This is the hope of, the, a hope of a salvation that we receive from Jesus in his death and resurrection. But Pastor, I think for you, it's sometimes hard too, huh? When you are... Yeah, absolutely. It's hard, yeah. It's hard to care for people. Because yeah. to inflict the pain and suffering, that's right, yeah. yeah. Feel like you're beating up on a guy, yeah. Okay, well, anyway, back to those uh, to eating and the sacrificial uh, stuff. I actually copied and uh, pasted. A, I stapled <laughs> these uh, this little chart. It's from uh, a, a, this, the Book of Leviticus, and if you look at Figure Four, so th- this is uh, Old Testament sacrifices, and what we find out, you know, so a lot of a lot of Religions had sacrifices. Of course, Bel had these, uh, this food uh, given to it. And of course, somebody might say, well, you know, back in the Old Testament, didn't they, you know, offer up sacrifices to God? And Well, if you take a look at figure four and you take a look at the manner of disposal, you basically have two fundamental manners of disposal. One is burnt offering. Yeah, so there's figure four. It's administration of the offerings. You have the type of offering, part of offering, manner of disposal. It's a, it's a chart there. So you have uh, the public burnt offering. That's kind of the, the whole animal. That's the whole burnt offering. That's the uh, Yom Kippur one. Um, burnt on the offer by the officiating, officiating priest. That means the whole thing just burnt up. Theoretically, nothing left over. Um, but if you take, keep looking down that right-hand column on the manner of disposal, you have burnt, burnt, and now you have eaten, burnt, eaten, incinerated. So there you go. I mean, that's the same. Uh, eaten. Now, the one that I, I, had, I had to look up, but I didn't actually look up, is the property of the officiating priest. I'm not sure what they did with that. Um, but eaten, 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 eaten. According to the Old Testament sacrifices, who is the food for? Not just the priests. The priests and who else? And the people. God didn't eat the stuff. He didn't need the meat. He gave it to the people. This was holy food to make holy people. Contrast to the bell story. is they, It's all... It's all lies and deceit, right? Old Testament, they say, this is what's going to happen. So, so what the, th- the parts that God did get was the fat and um, uh, the, sometimes the, uh, the liver. I mean, there's different parts. But it was all burnt up. It wasn't like it was just sat there and somebody came by and took it away. It was burned up. The, the fat, though, of course, was considered the best part. Very different than today's world. Well, yeah, the blood. Of, yeah, the blood. Yeah, yeah, you could consume the blood. Um, of, yeah, I drink blood. Yes, because the life was in the blood. That's why Jesus, when he's well, okay, no, that's a tangent. Uh, the whole point though is to compare and contrast now, because Daniel knows this of the living God. 
He doesn't need food. He, in fact, gives it, not just in the world, but also in worship. So, you know, Krista, when you talk about going to the Hindu Mandir, I mean, this is, this is the thing. We go to church not to give food, but to receive food. God is giving his gifts out in worship. So Daniel, of course, knows this. And that's why he thinks it's kind of a sham. He knows it's a sham. Now, he doesn't know exactly how it works out, right? He just knows that somebody's going in there. Someone or something is eating that food. Because he knows the one living God, if there's a living God, they give food, they don't, they don't take it. Which completely transforms why we go to church, right? We don't go, ch- we don't go to church to appease God. We go to church to receive from God. Forgiveness, life, salvation. And that is why we, that's, that's the only place we can get it. Okay. Ooh, we have the dragon now. Ooh, I don't know if we're going to have enough time here. But we might just have to you know, skip along here. All right, so starting in verse 23. There was a great dragon, which the Babylonians revered. And the king said to Daniel, You cannot deny that this is a living God, so worship him. Daniel said, I will worship the Lord my God, for he is the living God. But if you, O king, will give me permission, I will slay the dragon without sword or club. The king said, I give you permission. Then Daniel took pitch, fat, and hair and boiled them together and made cakes, which he fed to the dragon. The dragon ate them and burst open. And Daniel said, see what you've been worshiping? When the Babylonians heard it, they were indignant and conspired against the king, saying, The king has become a Jew. He has destroyed Bel and slain the dragon and slaughtered the priests. Going to the king, they said, Hand Daniel over to us, or else we will kill you and your household. The king saw that they were pressing him hard, and under compulsion, he handed Daniel over to them. Okay, so this is a trans, uh, transition, great transition here. But, uh, you know, what is the dragon? Uh, you know, I don't know. We take a look at all these uh, images from the ancient culture, and some of it looks like a snake. Uh, most of the pictures look like some large snake. Um, you know, uh, George and the dragon. You know, the George, the king, the, George, the dragon slayer, St. George. Yeah, thank you. King George was the madman, right? Yeah, or no. Right? Well, okay. He turned out to be a madman, right? Um, that's a little, you know, American Revolution history. Okay. Uh, St. George. St. George slays the dragon. There's a lot of theories about that because depending on the area where he was at when that actually happened, it was probably a, like a large alligator or crocodile. What, what's the... I, is it Africa's crocodile? Okay. Thank you. I don't want anybody to get confused. <laughs> um, actually, uh, well, never mind. Okay, good. Uh, yeah, so it was probably, yeah. So I don't know in, if in, uh, I didn't take a look at any sort of like um, National Geographic if there's any crocodiles in Babylon ever. So. That's right. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, they use the word dragon. Nobody, I mean, you know, of course, we all think about, you know, flying dragons, fire breathing. That, that's not what this word means. So, okay. It, it means some large reptilian, scaly, 
scary animal. It, it, yeah. So the Leviathan also uh, is sometimes used uh, with the word dragon. Okay. In Job 41. As, as, uh, okay, yep, the dragon's important. It, it's, it's kind of a, it carries divine properties because, you know, hung out with Marduk. Um, now, of course, then, now, the stakes are getting higher for Daniel, right? I mean, Mar, you know, Bell was a statue. Couldn't physically hurt Daniel. Now, of course, the snake can eat him. I mean, you know, <laughs> snakes are scary. So, um, when Daniel says, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, sl- uh, sl- you know, kill this snake or this dragon without a sword or club," I'm sure the king is thinking, "Yeah, right. This is impossible." But of course, he does. Now, whatever this, I don't know, some bomb or whatever he makes. <laughs> I don't know what happened. Some people, there's, there's some silly things where it's like some sort of like bad gas that, you know, it just causes them to, I don't know. The guy dies. The dragon dies. Kind of violently. Um, again, this is, this, there's no, there's no uh, prayer. There's no, you know, God, please, you know, defend me against this dragon. Um, again, he just exposes the dragon for what it is. It's just an animal. It's a creature. That can die. So, I mean, he shows that very uh, graphically. Um, now, the thing that's really interesting for me, though, is the response, the people's response. Who's now in charge by the end of this little section? The people. Yeah, the, the king has basically abdicated. He's lost all power. So the last section really has nothing to do with... It has more to do with the king personally now. The people throw, okay, yeah, so, so the, the people are more concerned about hanging on to what? Their gods, their society, their, their, their values. They're not interested in truth, okay, where the king appears to be more interested in kind of what's really happening. Holly. Yeah, what is truth? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those things where, you know, if the people decided to, you know, rebel, they probably, well, yeah, obviously the rulers knew that it would be impossible to uh, stop them. All right, so now let's get to the lion's den. They threw Daniel into the lion's den, and he was there for six days. There were seven lions in, in the den, and every day they had been given two human bodies and two sheep, but these were not given to them now, so that they might devour Daniel. Now the prophet Habakkuk was in Judea. He had boiled pottage and had broken bread into a bowl and was going into the field to take it to the reapers. But the angel of the Lord said to Habakkuk, Take the dinner that you have to Babylon, to Daniel, to the lion's den. Habakkuk said, Sir, I have never seen Babylon, and I know nothing about the den. Then the angel of the Lord took him by the crown of his head and lifted him by his hair and set him down in Babylon, right over the den with the rushing sound of the wind itself. Then Habakkuk shouted, Daniel, Daniel, take the dinner that God has sent you. And Daniel said, You have remembered me, O Lord, and have not forsaken those who love you. So Daniel arose and ate And the angel of God immediately returned Habakkuk to his own place. 
On the seventh day, the king came to mourn for Daniel. When he came to the den, he looked in, and there sat Daniel. And the king shouted with a loud voice, You are great, O Lord God of Daniel, and there is no other besides you. And he pulled Daniel out and threw into the den those who had attempted his destruction, and they were devoured immediately before his eyes. Ugh. Okay, it's a very peculiar little uh, strange uh, ending here, considering the first two episodes are very kind of just kind of normal. I mean, there's no miraculous things happening. Maybe the bomb that Daniel made could be a miracle. But um, the, uh, uh, now we have the, the prophet who's in Judea somehow fly. He's transported by the angel of the Lord. And, uh, and by his hair, which I'm sure that was great. And uh, given, given Daniel a, a porridge or pottage or whatever that is. I don't, I mean, I don't know, some stew. Um, now, the lion, though, in ancient Babylon is very interesting. I already mentioned it's, it's a symbol for Ishtar, a goddess. But also lions were associated with uh, the king. And so there was, actually, I didn't include, I just showed, uh, there's the gate of Ishtar, that's on the right side there, and then there's a lion picture from that gate. That's from ancient Babylon. Okay, so that's but that's in Berlin, yes, yes, that's right. That, that, that gate is physically in Berlin, but it was from Babylon. And I, think, and I think this is kind of reconstructed to, so... Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's quite amazing, especially if you think about it in terms of where it was at and the character of... The buildings back then, but that okay. Anywho, uh, so people would walk into Babylon through the gate. They would see the power and the authority of the king. The the animals um, all represented that. Actually, I didn't show. There's another one too. There's an ancient lion that that's, that's still you know like you know around Baghdad right now. But um, what did I say? Oh, so yeah. There's also some other uh, great images of a lion being released and the king. So lions were kept around because uh, kings would go on hunts and they would hunt the lion. And everyone would be like, oh my word, look how powerful the king is. He can even hunt a lion. So that's why, you know, that most likely that's why the lion's den was even around. Now, den, we don't know exactly what the den is because lions don't really live in that kind of environment. So um, either they were replacing the lions often or den is just kind of a, you know, go to Lincoln Park Zoo, see it. Um, yeah. Was the king the same king? Is it supposed to be the same king that... Um, In all three episodes? Yeah. yeah. Yep. Well, this is where, this is why, this is my question is, why now does he confess the, the God, Daniel's God to be a living God? And it's because now he is defeated. The king is defeated. Where before it was Bel... Uh, and, and, and his dragon, Marduk and his dragon, now he is defeated. He has nothing left to say. He's been re- rendered powerless because the lions have been defeated. Now, again, who was in control after the dragon? The people. They threw him into the lion's den. The lion is, is the sign of authority and power in Babylon. And now that has been rendered powerless. So there's nothing more for the king to do except for to acknowledge what is actually true, that God, Dan, the God of Daniel is the living God, and there is none like him. All right. Um, 
I'm sure there was a lot of interesting other things I had to say, but I wanted to get to the other thing, though, where was, um, oh, yeah, like the role of food. There's no mention of God shutting the mouths of the lions. I mean, it's, it's really interesting. And I, I was really trying to figure, I really wanted to find some, even if it was some obscure authority, to say that the food given to Daniel was given to the lions. But I didn't find any of that, but I thought boy, that would be just kind of a interesting little three stories of how um, Daniel defeats the, the idols with very kind of food, yeah. Well, I don't know what's in the stew. Who knows what's in the stew? But, yeah, but the whole point, though, is, is that Daniel eats the food and is saved. Again, I, I couldn't really find much theology behind that, but I thought that was interesting. Yeah, but the thing is, though, did the food defend the lions off, who theoretically should be starving now because they haven't eaten in a few days? You know? I, I couldn't figure that out. So, you know, that's interesting, right? I thought that was kind of neat. neat. But, but yes, yeah, so, so yeah, so Julie's right. The, the, the fundamental position is that um, God provided when Daniel had nothing in this, this miraculous circumstance. Again, nobody knows about that miracle except for Daniel, right? I mean... I mean, unless he tells the king later, I don't know, but there's no mention of the king witnessing these things. And you would have to say, well, did the lions not eat them? Why did the lions eat them? I don't because he ate God's food? I don't know. Could be. It would make kind of thematic sense, right? Food that was given to gods, where it was given to men, they died. Daniel, who's a prophet of God, gives... Food, well, whatever you want to call that thing. Food to the dragon dies. And now, rather than food given to the gods, God gives food to the man and lives, doesn't die. There's the contrast between the two scenarios. The whole point, though, that I really wanted to think about was is how Daniel, the society he's living in is not even remotely uh, Jewish. I mean, there's no, there's no... He is in a foreign place that worships foreign gods. And what's interesting is, is a couple of things about Daniel. His position. What is Daniel's relationship to the king? Friend. Highest friend. Like best friend. They're besties. They're very close. Now, how in the world could Daniel have achieved that status? And that is very interesting for us when we consider our own American society. He was willing, he was able to survive in this society, and not just survive, but actually get to a place of authority and position and still remain faithful to his God. I think that, that, that's fascinating for me to think about, especially as we consider, you know, the president who to vote for it coming up and the role of Christians even in, in, in government. So that, that's one thing, and then, and then of course, just the the the, uh, the, the, actual, the nature of the relationship between the king and Daniel is also very interesting. Uh, back in those days, actually, there's some very interesting ancient prayers that were were found in some of the, these excavations, and I can't remember the name of it, and I probably won't be able to pronounce it even if I saw it. But there was actually this ancient prayer by a, a ruler of of Babylon, where he actually confesses that. He has been saved by this living God. And the guy who actually helped him was a Jewish uh, diviner, a, a Jew who, who read 
dreams. And see, back in Babylon, that was like a position. It'd be like a like a part of the cabinet. Is you, and you went to school for this to to read dreams and figure this out because this was a legitimate thing. And Jews somehow were probably a part of that. Now that wouldn't necessarily conflict the idea of dreams and the influence of God communicating in dreams because that happened even you know throughout the Old Testament. But the whole point is is that you have this whole thing happening in in kind of their world where even though the king didn't necessarily it didn't follow the living God and maybe until after this he he actually acknowledged the legitimacy of Daniel and his authority the living God I, I find that very fascinating um, oh yeah, and, and, and there was no attacking. Daniel didn't attack once. You know, he didn't, he didn't... For some reason, Daniel allowed this king to worship the false, the idol for, it seems like, for a while. It wasn't until somebody said, well, why aren't you doing it? Well, I don't do that because I worship the living God. It's a very different kind of witness than, than kind of what the people who show up on my door on Saturday morning do. Um, we had one last night, in fact, next door who wanted to talk to me, and I said, you know, no, thank you. But um, I'm wondering if that could help us inform, inform us of how we now begin to live the Christian life in, in today's Western culture, is that there is a quiet confidence in Daniel that probably is more applicable to us today than we might think of, you know, go back 30, 40 years when it was very normal for Christians to go door-to-door, sit on the corner, and do these things. Now, I'm wondering if Daniel's way of handling his faith is probably more um, appropriate for us now and more actually influential. Words to think about. Let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Oh, uh, Susanna, next week. Susanna.